BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways, shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Before my first daughter was born, before I could even imagine her existence, I had a dream that I was walking at the edge of the world. Everything around me was frozen, and the night sky hung low. A little girl appeared at my side and pointed into the tiny clusters of light. Misha, she said. Misha. In Russian, Misha means little bear. And if you look up in the night sky as the little girl instructed, you'll see Ursa Minor, the little bear with the North Star at the tip of its tail. A star that no matter where you are in the world or who you are in the world, has always hung above, guiding us. My name is Julie Douglas, and this is The Stuff of Life. Each of us is connected to each other, relies on one another, gives and takes, consciously or unconsciously, weaving the web of support that it takes to make a society. In a sense, we're all just broken fragments of the whole, guiding ourselves back to each other. My name is Ayşe. As I said, I'm originally from Turkey, uh, but I have been living in this country for the past 40 years, and I'm a retired neurologist. I'm Suli. Uh, I'm from Thailand, but I've lived in the U.S. since 1973. Uh, my name is Kathy, and I actually lived in this area and worked for the federal government for 30 years. A Muslim, a Catholic, and a lapsed Buddhist walk into a march. It sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's Aisha, Suli, and Kathy. 
We met them at the Women's March in D.C., a historic day when more than half a million people joined together in despair, anger, and hope about our collective existence. I hope people will begin to talk both on a macro level and on a micro level. I think you have to do a lot of one-on-one with your families and with your friends. And I think one of the issues that is, is happening today, people don't talk to each other. They just want to yell at each other and scream at each other, and they want you to believe what they believe. And we all believe different things, and we all have the right to believe what we want to believe. That's what our country is all about. The trick is to find common ground, and quite literally, that's something we all have available to us, right under our feet. Something we know as children, but forget as adults. Young Ferdinand the Bull, um, you know, he doesn't want to be uh, bucking heads with the other bulls. Instead, he'd rather lay under the trees and uh, smell the flowers. And, um, you know, that's what he wanted to do. Um, His mother was concerned that he wasn't doing these things, but then she decides that Ferdinand is sort of content as he is, and she left him alone. That's Charles Birnbaum, the founder, president, and CEO of the Cultural Landscape Foundation, talking about an influential childhood book, Ferdinand the Bull. We met Charles on a sidewalk in Washington, D.C. at the Women's March. He told us about his work at the foundation and the way in which landscapes are democratizing and even healing. And I've looked back on this recently, um, you know, thinking about this book and this idea of um, smelling the flowers. What's so interesting to me is how often I am moving through a place and people aren't looking. They're on their phones, they're looking down. The mission of the Cultural Landscape Foundation is to connect people to places. By doing that, they teach people how to see what Charles calls the invisible hand of the landscape architect, or how to value nature and culture on equal footing. Landscapes are incredibly personal. There's a reason why gardening and golf are America's favorite hobbies. I asked Charles what kind of landscape is his favorite, and he told me it's a kind of borrowed scenery. I think for me, the idea of sky and skyline. And perhaps it's because I'm born and raised in New York City and that open space was a very precious commodity. Charles's memories of working alongside his grandparents became foundational to his understanding of time and history. I had grandparents who lived in New London, Connecticut, and they were, uh, my grandmother in particular, was a great gardener. Um, I remember the sweeps of black-eyed Susans. And, but the, the formative moment that I remember was being in the vegetable garden planting tomatoes with my grandfather and uh, tilling the soil. And one of the things we unearthed was an old Moxie pop bottle. I had never heard of Moxie Pop. Um, I knew Coke and Pepsi, but not Moxie. And um, this was a bottle that probably had been in the ground for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. And it was the first time, I think, as, a, as, as even a young person to think about the idea that the landscape is embedded with stories and our challenge is to unlock those and to discover those. And I just remember thinking how remarkable it was and... Um, 
you know, I think as a young person, I even remember thinking about, you know, the dinosaurs and that the, that they too were um, part of this palimpsest, this layer and layer upon layer of landscape history. That we're tethered to the land through time and history is most evident with something called witness trees. One of the things about landscape is that when you have something that is living, like a tree, and the tree was there for an event, it becomes a portal or a lifeway. I guess one of the most um, tangible witness trees, if you will, that I can think about is um, the memorial at the World Trade Center in Manhattan. There is this incredible Bradford pear tree that um, survived that day. And it was moved off-site in a protected environment during the work that then ensued for a number of years. And it was brought back, and there's a a wonderfully, beautifully, simply designed uh, railing around it. And literally, people line up for upwards of 20 to 30 minutes, as I've witnessed, to be photographed in front of this tree and um, to have that tangible connection with something that survived that day. It's incredibly powerful. It's easy to see how landscapes, borrowed scenery, and public spaces can become bound up in what Charles calls the messy, emotional, and provocative aspects of history. We've seen this recently with the executive order signed by President Trump that could reshape 24 national monuments, including Bears Ears Monument. You know, this is a landscape that is imbued with um, not just a, a treasure trove of Resources. I mean, I've read that there's over 100,000 archaeological sites and wall etchings that are unrivaled. But it also has um, Navajo and Hopi um, and, um, you know, a, a great number of five, I think it's five um, local tribes, uh, Native peoples who are, you know, have their stories embedded in these places. You know, when you remove the politics that you have to begin with saying, what is the significance of this place? And, you know, a national monument doesn't happen. I mean, although it is something that the president makes happen, it is based on an incredible amount of research and documentation. While documentation is incredibly important, there are less tangible facets to a landscape. You know, when we talk about our connectivity to a place, um, there is emotional connectivity. Um, For example, that might be, um, you know, we were talking about national monuments with Bears Ears. Uh, You think about Stonewall National Monument in New York City that, you know, you have the tavern, but the park that's across the street, which is called Christopher Park, which is part of that national monument designation, and it's a city park, um, you know, where these... um, riots or rallies played out over time, um, that landscape was rehabilitated by uh, a a landscape architect in the 1980s named Phil Winslow, who died of AIDS. And so for people that um, were in New York, then for people that make the pilgrimage who are um, gay or transgender, um, this could be, this is a very, a, a 
powerful emotional connection when you stand there. And, you know, we talked about the visual connections, the borrowed scenery. Imagine, you know, being on the terrace at Biltmore, the estate in North Carolina in Asheville. And if you didn't have that view, which is preserved, it would be a very different experience. But, you know, I think the other thing that we don't talk about are the, the less tangible things we experience. Charles says the National Register of Historic Places has something called the seven aspects of integrity when evaluating a property for historic designation. The last two aspects are called feeling and association. How do we wrap our heads around that? Think about the sound of birds. You know, those are called biophonic sounds. Um, Rushing water on a grand scale Niagara Falls, or it could be a cascade in your neighborhood park, or... You know, if you live in the Lower South, it might be Spanish moss blowing in the wind. Those are geophonic sounds, and those contribute to our experiences. And then there are man-made sounds. And some of those can be happy or, or not so happy sounds. I mean, think about going to a ball game and the sound of a bat making contact with a ball, that cracking sound, and the rush that you have when you hear that or the, the roar of the crowd. that they they give us pleasure, but we may not be aware of them. And um, I think that's all part of experiencing a landscape are those emotional, visual, and sensory sounds and experiences that we have. So with all that's tangible and intangible, I asked Charles what it means to be a good steward of the land. There's, There's two different kinds of stewardship that happens. There's stewardship that happens in your heart, which is basically, I mean, if you own a resource or, you know, it's almost like being a parent, you know, how will you care for this place? Um, Will you manage change in a way that is sensitive to these systems that we both have alluded to? And the systems can be cultural life ways. They can be uh, the hand of a, a designer. They can be um, ecology in all of its manifestations, um, watershed, um, you know, insect and bird populations, you know, the use of um, natives and not exotics. All of that is stewardship. But the stewardship is also acting with knowledge. And this knowledge can be known or just waiting to be unearthed which all comes down to those moxie bottles of stories hidden in the land. How do we begin to really unlock these stories and to make people inquisitive, invite them to fall into that portal and, um, and to take the time to do it, to open their heart, to open their eyes, to open their ears. An excerpt from When I Am Among the Trees by Mary Oliver. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, especially the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches 
and they call me again. It's simple, they say. You too have come into the world to go easy, to be filled with light, and to shine. Before my first daughter was born, before I could even imagine her existence, I had a dream that I was walking at the edge of the world. Everything around me was frozen, and the night sky hung low. A little girl appeared at my side and pointed into tiny clusters of light. Misha, Misha, she insisted. In Hebrew, Misha is a name that can also mean a question. The question, who is like God? Perhaps no one, or perhaps all of us. Imagine if you inherited a, a, a trunk from your ancestors that's full of heirlooms, and the trunk has a a set size, so you won't get heirlooms from everybody because you have a lot, a lot of ancestors. But you can imagine you can kind of rifle through there and, and pick up various pieces, uh, and they'll represent different ancestral lines for you. My name is Jake Burns, and I'm a manager of population genomics at Ancestry DNA. And I would describe having spent my career examining DNA to understand sort of how the evolutionary process works at a fundamental level. How does it change your DNA over time? Jake had always been steeped in mathematics and biology, but when he learned that with DNA he could dive into the past of nearly any organism and discover something hidden about their histories, he was hooked. And the idea is, um, over time, DNA, uh, through the copying process, it isn't perfect when you pass it on generation to generation, so you acquire mutations. And you can actually think of those mutations as a ticking clock, and each mutation is a tick. Um, uh, because they're roughly evenly spaced through time, you can start to date various events in time by looking at kind of the, the number of mutations or differences that separate uh, two different organisms. Combine those molecular clocks with that trunk from your ancestors and a fuller picture of the United States unfolds. The U.S. is, you know, I think particularly exceptional in having drawn immigrant populations from all over the world uh, in very recent time, in the last you know four or five hundred years, kind of since the, the birth of the country, and um, that you know influx of uh, culture, language, uh, worldview, and DNA from around the world creates this uh, great mixture within the U.S. What's exciting from a genetics point of view is uh, there are enough subtle differences between these different groups that we can, you know, attempt to assign kind of originating uh, points uh, in time and space 
and, and, and kind of tell this very complicated story of how people have arrived and assimilated in some cases or not in other cases uh, into the, the broader population within the U.S. Point of origination, arrival, simulation, these words stick out because they underscore a deeply entrenched pattern in humans. The idea that our genes have crisscrossed the globe and that we're actually far more connected to one another than we know. But to truly understand, we're going to need some M&Ms in a few jars. You imagine uh, a giant glass bowl and you fill it with M&Ms. But imagine that we have uh, thousands and thousands of M&Ms in this giant bowl, and imagine that they are hundreds of different colors. Now we can imagine this bowl kind of represents one generation of people in history where each M&M is a person, and their colors tell you something about kind of the DNA that they carry. Now imagine that uh, to construct a new generation, we're going to sort of take a sample from that first bowl and move it into a second bowl. And that's how we're going to create a new generation. When you do your sampling in a, in a sort of typical population that isn't undergoing a bottleneck, you would imagine kind of individually picking out one M&M at a time and maybe then uh, dropping it in the new bowl and replacing uh, it in the original bowl. So what you end up with in the second bowl, if you sample again, thousands of M&Ms into the second bowl, is roughly the same representation of colors and kind of roughly the same proportions of colors in the second bowl. So that's kind of a typical uh, population uh, generation. This is a stable population of M&Ms pouring in and out day after day. But what if something disrupts it, something catastrophic, creating a bottleneck? The hand of God, so to speak, digging into the bowl simply reach in that big, that big first bowl with a hand and select a single handful of M&Ms and throw them into the new bowl, and then imagine that uh, that little handful expanded over time. That handful effectively represents a genetic bottleneck, where you've taken a very small sample of the original population and the original diversity, and you've seeded a new population. What you can imagine happens is in that small handful, you, you got uh, probably no representatives of some colors. And in some cases, you may have gotten way more M&Ms of a particular color than you would expect by chance. We humans take our position in the food chain of life for granted, but there have been moments in time like around 50 to 60,000 years ago when humans were far from dominating the world. In fact, the population had whittled down significantly to a bottleneck, the handful of M&Ms plucked from the jar, so to speak. And from this handful, we are all descended. To see this idea illustrated in a mathematical constellation, Jake and his team constructed a network of 700,000 Ancestry.com customers. Here's what they found. And if you imagine each one uh, as a point in a large graph, we'll draw an edge between any pair of individuals if they share enough genetic material to be fairly recently related. Uh, what was surprising is that almost that entire graph is very highly connected. So among those 700,000 people, we had to draw over 500 million lines to connect them all. And yet we still gather into mental tribes. 
it's a tough time, right? Um, you know, there's a, I think, a wave of nationalism across the world, but uh, in response also to uh, the dangers of globalism, right? So it's, you know, that's a very tough conversation. I think um, each person has to sort of um, figure out where they fall. Um, but I think genetics uh, and family history have surprisingly a, a little part to play in that story. One of the most important take-home messages is, is exactly this connectivity of, of humanity. Um, you know, we have a tremendous tendency uh, on the surface to, um, to be tribal, right? To support those in our community, our close community. And, and part of the way we kind of create this social bond is by uh, treating those who are next door, just across the street or across the political boundary as the enemy. And, you know, one of the really powerful things about uh, what we see in genetic data is, you know, those close neighbors uh, typically are very close relatives of, of yours uh, in fairly recent history. And so, you know, it might be very optimistic, but I have high hopes for sort of the transformational power of getting this information in a, a broader audience's hands where they can um, kind of sit back and sort of recognize uh, how closely related we all are. Humans are a collection of genes scattered across time as we know it on Earth. But we owe our true beginnings to the tumbleweed of cosmic matter, matter that originated with time itself. The chemical elements that we see in the mirror in the morning when we look at ourselves, so those were all atoms that were inside stars uh, hundreds of millions of years ago to billions of years ago. And so uh, this is a pretty astonishing story just to begin with uh, about the atoms. We're all connected uh, in a very deep way, and yet we all forget that. I'm John Mather. I work at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and, and I'm the senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. John's work has helped confirm the Big Bang Theory, the very moment time began when our universe came into existence. And he's done this with extraordinary accuracy. John leads the team for the James Webb Space Telescope, a telescope designed to peer far back into time. A committee was formed, of course, to write a report to say, well, what do we do next? And they said, please build us an even bigger, more powerful telescope that could see farther back in time to see those first galaxies growing. And that's what's become the James Webb Space Telescope. In this way, the telescope acts as night vision goggles, observing longer infrared wavelengths. This allowed scientists to see things that had never been detected before. The locations of thousands of other planets orbiting other stars with conditions that could be similar to Earth have been isolated. We'd like to find the one that's just, just the right uh, temperature, the right size, has the right amount of gravity, the roughly the right chemistry, to be like home. This kind of curiosity was a feature of John's childhood. I grew up in very rural northern New Jersey, and so it was really country and really far away from town, and it was dark at night, and you could see the stars. It was a really interesting place uh, scientifically to grow up uh, because geology was happening all around. Uh, this is uh, where the uh, Appalachians cut across New Jersey, and so the glaciers had come across and uh, brought in all kinds of interesting stones and rocks, and there were fossils lying by the road. 
we went down to the Museum of Natural History in New York City and we saw the, uh, the planetarium show and we saw the bones displayed, the dinosaurs and the, uh, and the evolution displays so you could see how the fish turned into bigger fish and got more complicated over the zillions of years. So um, anyway, it was, a, it was a fascinating time to be a kid, uh, just uh, having a sense of everything was open to be discovered and everything was fascinating. But what drives John the most are the mysteries embedded in the stars. Immediately, I'm connected with the story that we tell about where did we come from, how did we get here. Um, and I know from, the, uh, from studying and thinking about it that the, the universe is truly immense and gigantic and that the stars are really far away. And that the part that we can get from personal experience is so tiny by comparison. You know, um, a human lifespan is about 100 years and that's about as much as we can remember. Uh, we talk to our grandparents and that's about as far back as anybody remembers in person. And then we go on to say, uh, well, we scientists have figured out what's happened over billions of years and it's way beyond uh, personal experience, uh, but it's still mysterious and wonderful. And so I say, what a miraculous uh, thing to be appreciative of, to say, well, out of this enormous universe, here we are uh, looking up at the great mysteries of the sky and uh, and the mysteries of our own history. So what does all of this look like to John, who's looked deep into space and time through the telescope, returning again and again home to Earth. Because Earth's special even in the solar system. Uh, we're the only ones that have uh, liquid ocean on the surface. Uh, we have continents and oceans, just enough water to fill up the ocean, but not all the way over the top of the mountain. So um, we can imagine that life on another planet that had water might exist, but without continents, they wouldn't have people. Uh, virtually all the astronauts that look back at the Earth, uh, either from the space station or from the Apollo, they all uh, report some kind of mystic experience about this, uh, seeing the Earth as small and fragile and as our only home. People come back uh, realizing that our Earth is very special. We might need to protect it as well as we can, uh, both from natural disasters and from the kinds of disasters that we could cause for ourselves. So we might be the only ones for a uh, long, long distance around. For John, all of this heady stuff is actually very grounding. It does give you a sense of humility and awe at the power of creation. Uh, whatever creation story we may have, as no matter how you tell it, it's astonishing. So um, gratitude for, for the opportunity to be here. Um, I think Jim Lovell, uh, astronaut who went to the moon, uh, said basically, um, this is heaven right here. When you're born, you are in heaven. I think this is a, a wonderful perspective to think about. Um, this is a very special spot. A special spot that we all somehow made it to.
Before my first daughter was born, before I could even imagine her existence, I had a dream that I was walking at the edge of the world. Everything around me was frozen, and the night sky hung low. A little girl appeared at my side, and she pointed into tiny clusters of light. Misha. A year later, my daughter Sade was born. She grew strong. She pulled sticks across the dirt, and she learned the names of the stars. Seven years later, I woke up. I was 36 weeks pregnant, and I knew something was wrong. Soon, I bore a second child, a girl who fought her way into the world. We named her Skye, and one spring day, her sister Sade whispered to her, I love you, Skye. I wished on the North Star for you. If you were to connect dots from Sky to each person responsible for her existence today, you would see a kind of infinity spiraling out from her, moving back and forth through time. The very same is true for each of us. That we are separate from everyone and everything around us is a myth. We see water from a faucet and think of it as distinctly ours. Food is delivered from the ground to our shelves and it becomes ours. We see our hand outstretched in front of us and we think, that is me. But the fact is the constituent parts of our body were ripped from the mesh of the universe, molecule by molecule. Even the oxygen we breathe is on loan from every breath of every human being who has ever lived and whose breath rippled out into the atmosphere before us. We are wired together by forces seen and unseen. with us this season. We'll be back soon for season three. Many thanks to Jake Burns at Ancestry DNA for helping us to better understand that we're all from the same pond. Ancestry.com provided several kits for staff and we are all now discovering thousands of third and fourth cousins we never knew we had. And thank you to Charles Birnbaum of the Cultural Landscape Foundation. The foundation, which can be found at tclf.org, is accepting nominations for at-risk landscapes. And finally, thank you to Nobel laureate John C. Mather of NASA for sharing personal stories of his youth and how those stories led him to look further into the universe and, by extension, give all of us a view into the cosmos. Stuff of Life is written and executive produced by me, Julie Douglas, and co-produced by Noel Brown. Editorial oversight is provided by contributing producer Dylan Fagan and head of production Jerry Rowland. Original music is by Noel Brown. The song Cylinder 5 is by Chris Zabriaski. You can find more of his music at chriszabriaski.com. This episode also featured music by Dylan Fagan, Tristan McNeil, and Aaron Grubbs. Also included are songs by Breathers. 
find more of their work at breathers.bandcamp.com. And you can find The Stuff of Life on Facebook and Twitter, and you can email us at thestuffoflife at howstuffworks.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply.